welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Joe Boris, and with me today is a very special guest, Mr. Steve Heckeroth. Now, you're not only the founder and the chief innovation officer of Selectrack, which is the electric tractor company, but you actually have, a, a man, at this point, 30-plus year history with electric vehicles and designing and developing them. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. It goes back a little further than that, actually. I was uh, brought up in L.A. and experienced uh, smog firsthand. And at a very young age, I decided that I wanted to find alternatives to burning fossil fuel as my lungs were burning, running cross cross country along a freeway. So, But, you know, that's an interesting thing to bring up because you and I can talk about smog because we're old enough to remember it. But I think you know, guys in their early 30s and their late 20s, they, they've never seen Los Angeles with smog. They just know, you know, those panoramic helicopter views from, you know, TV shows and movies and things like that. They don't understand that there was a time you couldn't see the valley from the mountains because the, the air pollution was so bad. Well, you couldn't see the mountains from the valley either. The <laughs> yeah, we, 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 there was months when we didn't see the mountains and they're only like 20 miles away. And it took the Santa Ana winds to blow it all out. And then you go, oh my gosh, there's mountains there and they have snow on them. <laughs> it was incredible. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it, it's such a different time, but yeah, so, you know, this is one of the things that we always talk about in, in language of electric cars, right? But I mean, going back even further, you you built your own electric car out of a, a Carmen Ghia, I believe, if I remember correctly. You were one of the people who ordered a U.S. electric car years ago when you had a, uh, a 550 Porsche Spider that you had converted to electric. So, like, this is not something that you're you're kind of new at. You're not into it as a trend, this is something that you've really believed in and put your money where your mouth is for 40 years. Uh, yeah, for actually 50 years, I, I got my degree in architecture 50 years ago, 52 years ago, and and first built passive solar homes and got uh, zero energy homes figured out. And then, then in 1990, the zero emission mandate came out in California and I thought, all right, I'm going to tackle transportation. And along with right. everybody else, it was just a really exciting time. There was new companies coming out every day wanting to uh, tackle this problem of, of uh, the pollution in, uh, in, in L.A. And, and across the, the state. I originally started just converting everything I could get my hands on. I, I did a, a Fiero, seemed to be the one that everybody thought was a, a good conversion, a mid-engine, but it actually had a, a steel body underneath the fiberglass. So it was, it was a very heavy car. It wasn't a very good conversion. The secret uh, I found to a long-range electric vehicle 
with lead acid batteries was half battery weight or more. And so I started looking around for the lightest car I could find that could carry the most weight. And I settled on Volkswagens because they had this huge aftermarket for dune buggies. You oh, yeah, you could any... build one out of a parts catalog. Yeah, you could get any kind of suspension you wanted from from uh, the dune buggy era. So uh, so I did Carmen Gears, and I didn't just do the, the regular Carmen Gear. I did the Type 3 Carmen Gear, which is a very rare... Uh, there's only about 200 of them in the country. They were all bought, brought over by servicemen who purchased them in Germany and sent them over. But this is a key thing. So so for those of you who don't know, and, and I didn't know this until Steve and I talked about it a while back, the Type 3 Carmen Gia was very interesting because you could put the suspension from the Type 2 bus on underneath it. And that was a, a much heavier, or I'm sorry, the, the square back underneath it. And that was rated for, I think, 500 or 1,000 pounds more. And that would enable you to carry those batteries without having to reinvent the wheel from the suspension standpoint. Yeah, it was, it was quite a revelation. I was lucky enough to get five of the Type 3 Carmageas and make uh, put them on. They were all junkyard models, but I was able <laughs> to get two good bodies together and because they were so rare, they, you know, I, I converted a lot of stuff and spent a lot of time on restoration and, and what you end up with, if it's not a, a classic car is, is an electric vehicle that nobody's really interested in. But, but if you convert a classic car, that's pretty rare, then uh, you get a lot of interest. And I was a member of the type three Carmen Gia club and they were just over the moon about electric type three Carmen, Carmen Gia's. Oh, that's awesome. So um, yeah, it's a variant wagon, actually the type three variant wagon, which wasn't very popular, but there was, there was quite a few old ones you could get at the junkyard. And I, I pulled, nobody even knew it at Volkswagen. That you could pull the pull the transmission and the front out, out, and you would have a car that was twenty years newer. Right. You know the the Type Threes were built back in the sixties, and the the variant wagons were built right up to the eighties. Yeah, and, so, you, and uh, they had they had that common floor pan that you could swap stuff in and out of. Yeah, it was it was yeah, it, it was, was actually a such a clever design. Bolt-on. You know, you think about now GM is revolutionizing the auto industry with an Ultium chassis and they can put the Ultium underneath a minivan, underneath a sports car, underneath a a family sedan. And then you look back to the 60s and VW was doing exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. You get uh, disc brakes, which you couldn't have before on on the the new variant wagon. And it had a, you know, a a double... uh, double u-joint suspension so so the wheels instead of when you've bounced up the wheels would always turn in on the old ones well this one the wheels stayed straight up and down so it was it was quite a uh, they were wonderful cars and i i put 1400 pounds of batteries in those things had a hundred over a hundred mile range when everybody else was getting less than 50 yeah, well, it's funny, the Mazda CX-30 I'm driving now still has less than 100 mile range. But you know, I, I want to talk about this because you made a comment there about the 100, about, I'm sorry, the 1400 pounds of batteries 
that you added to this car. And that's a beautiful segue because when we talk about sports cars, performance cars, even the range of passenger cars, weight is the enemy. But you discovered something interesting, which is that in the world of tractors, in the world of agriculture, added weight is your friend. So talk us through that, how you made that discovery and how you transitioned into agriculture. Well, I was ended up building uh, replica kits of uh, Porsche Spiders and and just filling them up with lead and, and thinking, God, this is stupid. And and so I was at the county fair and I saw this big cement block on the back of a tractor with a forklift on the front. And that was the aha moment that, oh, my gosh, tractors need weight for traction. So I switched my entire focus to tractors. And that's that was in 1992. <laughs> and so oh, wow. I've been doing that ever since I, I built a, a rototiller back in 94. Uh, electric rototiller and uh, I'm just starting to do that again because uh, I, I want to build a, a very economical tractor and and two wheels a lot cheaper than four yeah exactly right and, and it's it, <laughs> it's funny that we talk about that I don't know if we ever got into it when we were hanging out but you know I, I'm a gravely man myself so that's got the the two wheels with the the rotary motor um Anyway, absolutely yeah, we'll, get, great. We'll, we'll get way off topic talking about gravelys on this show <laughs> <laughs> no i'm glad to hear you you know about that that's uh the, that was a predecessor of the the bcs that is now the big two-wheel tiller uh, I know. but uh those are classic though you can it's funny because there's a group on facebook that's restoring the old ones and they have the, you know, we got the old school one with the the kind of the metal seat and the skis that'll pull you behind it. Right. It looks wild. I'll send you pictures. I'll put, I'll put pictures in the show notes so that the people here listening can, can understand what we're talking about. But, you know, the importance of agriculture when it comes to reducing carbon emissions, I think is overlooked. People look at big numbers like 14 million cars on the road and things like that. But agriculture plays two roles. Number one, there's not that sense of emissions controls in a lot of those vehicles, and they do pollute far more than, you know, 10 or 15 or even 20 cars on its own. But more importantly than that, agriculture, you know, and, and I don't want to put this in a, in a way that sounds cavalier or flippant because this is really true. Agriculture can save the world. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's, uh, you know, I, I discovered this chart on the global temperature over 20,000 years. And, you know, 12,000 years, we were just coming out of an ice age and the temperature was, was going up extremely fast. And when agriculture started 12,000 years ago, that, that temperature sort of leveled off and then it started go, actually going down. And when you think about it, you know, plants are the things that have made life possible, oxygen-dependent life possible, because it was three billion years of microscopic plant growth that took the sun's energy and carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in their the carbon in their bodies and exhaled oxygen. So they took the CO2 and put the O2 back in the atmosphere. And 
it took three billion years of microscopic plants to make this planet a place where we could live. Yeah. And, and then those, you know, it, to use your own analogy, those became the big plants and trees, like the, the you know, dinosauric periods and all that. And for the first few million years of these large plant growths, there was no microbes or animals around to eat those plants when they died. So when they would die, they would just sit there and amass in, in these great quantities. And that eventually is uh, what became a big part of fossil fuels. Is that incorrect? Well, it, it's mainly the, the bodies of these microscopic blue-green algae really? and microscopic organ, organisms that settled to the bottoms of the world worldwide ocean and then these rare geologic events the tectonic plates the volcanoes all the things buried the those microscopic bodies and they became the coal if they were close to the surface you go a little deeper and they, there was more pressure they became oil and you go a little deeper they became natural gas under a lot of pressure so it's it's the microscopic bodies mostly that we're now digging up and we're reversing the process that made life possible. We're undoing the work that they did to create a, a, a hospitable atmosphere. Yeah, just just for for uh, a time frame, my daughter was an environmental ed teacher and she did a four and a half mile walk, which is the history of the world. And she labeled the place where the first blue-green algae started. Then three miles later, the first animal life started. And then the last half mile was this evolution of animal life resulting in the human. And if you take all of human history, the last 12,000 years, it's five-eighths of an inch on that scale. So wow. here you have four and a half miles of making this planet, the Garden of Eden for just for us, you know, and then then you have five eighths of an inch of human history. And the Industrial Revolution is the thickness of a piece of paper. But it's on. But that thickness of the piece of paper is undoing the good work of miles of time. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's it, what really expresses it when you take that walk and you get to the end and there's this thickness of a piece of paper undoing unraveling the billions of of years of uh of laying down this mm -hmm. this uh fossil fuel in in the earth's crust yeah so i i want to talk a little bit about uh again the, your company is called Selectrek. we've talked to you guys multiple times on the show uh with manny who's your ceo who's, who's a good guy we've talked to him many times and you know you have identified uh as a company you have identified the small farmer uh, you know what what is kind of derisively referred to as the hobby farmer in the u.s but it, it's important to realize that this giant industrialized ultra corporate farming that happens in the U.S. is not universal, right? Like the vast majority of farms in, on this planet are smaller farms. Is that not right? Yeah, there's 600 million farms in the world. Wow. And there's only 25 million tractors. So the majority of the farms are very small subsistence farms without machinery. So uh, 
we we that's the exciting part for me is as fast as I can I want to build tractors for those those farms so that they can do what what you saw on that chart can start covering the earth with green again yeah and, and not only cover the earth with green it's you know I've been doing since you and I had this conversation we talked about this a lot in Long Beach a while back and and uh, you know a lot of the things that Steve taught me and showed me really resonated with me I've been learning more about this a lot of the crops that we eat, the what they call the cover crops, the beans, the legumes, the cereals, these are crops. That, these are like ideal for carbon sequestration. Is that is that what you're finding as well? Or, or you well, yeah, think? there's there's a couple different types of agriculture going on. Uh, you know, the the industrial agriculture now is is producing about ten percent of the greenhouse gas emissions. And it's because it's entirely based on fossil fuel and chemicals going back to the green revolution, which I call the toxic revolution, because it was when they came out with uh, with the chemical fertilizers, the herbicides and pesticides and and really just used the soil as a medium to put their chemicals in. And it was dead soil. So so there's really not a lot of photosynthesis going on there there's only the crop that's resistant to the the herbicides that they're putting on it and nothing else and so, so that like we have to switch yeah that yeah. ecosystem everything that comes with it the insect life the mosses the the fungus all of that stuff that that occurs naturally none of that's happening on an industrial farm yeah, that's that's the sad state we're in, and that the industrial farms are are going to see their day because the price of the chemical fertilizers just tripled, and the price of diesel fuel just tripled. So so they're they were right on the edge of profitability already, and that's that's going to take them over the edge, and and now we're looking at 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 looking at alternatives that complete nutrient cycles in a small community scale but you know how do we transition to that because I, one of the things that i found most shocking when when you and i were talking the other day was the comment that i think you said the majority of farmers the average farmer in the united states was in their 60s, 65, 68 years old. You know, that doesn't seem like a population that's like really driving innovation and change. No, I, I think that there are there are a lot of old folks, you know. I'm, I'm well, I mean, the two of us are here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm 74. I was going to so, say, you're, uh, you're a year or two older than I am, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still... Uh, Still looking forward to a lot of a lot of changes happening real soon because I got kids and grandkids and I don't want to leave them with a world that's uh, that's polluted and uh, and you know the the things that are happening to the climate now are just undeniable you know as much as much as the fossil fuel industry would like us to think that climate change is not real. My my daughter's house burnt to the ground. She just yeah. got out with her her clothes and her car, and that that was it. Her two little boys and husband 
uh, watch their house burn to the ground. And that's happening all over. Just my neighbor, 700 houses burnt down right next to my where I live, too. So. And and there's it's more than that, right? I mean, they had that heat dome in India where it was 140 degrees in, in a populated area. Thousands of people died. They have mudslides that are happening, you know, hundred year mudslides that are happening every summer now in in parts of of south you know Southeast Asia. And I I wonder at what point it's not going to be. Contra- I mean, I, unfortunately, I know the answer, and the answer is for a lot of these people they're not going to believe it until it happens to them. That seems to be the, the defining characteristic of some of these guys is that it's not a problem unless it's happening to them. Yeah. Well, it is happening to them. You know, the whole Mississippi (laughs) Valley flooded and, you know, all those chemical fertilizers got washed into the Mississippi and there was this plume out in the, you know, the Gulf that's right. Dead, it was a dead zone that went for hundreds of miles because of the nutrients that they'd put in there that, that has used up all the oxygen and the water and the the fish. Every, all the life died. So it's it, there's it's happening. They they can still try and deny it, but but when their land is flooded, when there's no water in the whole California Valley, the wells have all gone dry. And that's that's the breadbasket of of uh, the country. You know, that's yeah. where most of the produce comes from. And so uh, we're we're looking at some really big changes do you coming think down the pike. A hundred percent. Do do you think it could be? You know, you you make the comment here, and, and it, it's a really good comment. The regenerative agricultural practice of keeping the ground covered with carbon sequestering plants can do this again. It can save the day again if we stop burning fossil fuels yesterday. You know, and again, there's no tongue in cheek there. There's no sarcasm there. We must stop burning fossil fuels immediately. But I mean, is this something that, I mean, we can hit the brakes and hit reverse on this if we do the right thing here? Absolutely. That's, that's, I have to stay hopeful. You know, I I don't want to give up on my kids and grandkids. Yeah, in the U.S. and the Western rich countries, the only reason they're rich is because they have access to fossil fuel. All the poor countries don't have access to fossil fuel. And so the rich countries say, oh, well, we'll feed you. And they send them this this food that's grown on this land that's full of poisons. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the food can be of that much value to those people compared to the food that you grow on your in your own backyard yeah using organic regenerative methods and and and, you know there's that that common refrain that you know whenever you hear someone who is critical of you know organic sustainable farming the first thing they always say is oh yeah organic farming is great who would you you know what what 20% of the population would you like to starve out? And I always feel like that's unfair because we have millions and millions and millions of acres that aren't farming anything. And we also have, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of acres in the U S that are growing food that's going in silos and being, you know, essentially subsidized by the government to not be turned into food. We have tremendous food waste 
in, in the world right now. And, and, and you know, I, I, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth, but I, I'll certainly say it from my point of view. It seems to me like there's plenty of food for everybody, but there's a system in place that's preventing that food from getting to the people who need it. Well, absolutely. It's the system that's in place is based entirely on fossil fuel. And, and you watch, you watch the price of fossil fuel go up and it's an exact lockstep with the price of food. You know, it's just the, it's like, it takes 10 barrels of oil to keep one person alive. uh, And, in in a in a fossil fuel economy mm-hmm. whereas if we go to a solar electric economy it takes you know you eliminate fossil fuel and you become independent of of that whole economy you can have on-site solar with a tractor and be farming for 25 years without any outside inputs well, without outside, without outside inputs and, and really with minimal maintenance and minimal repairs because your moving parts are three or four. Absolutely. Yeah, there's one moving part in electric motor. There's 300 moving parts in a diesel engine. So there's, there's no comparison. There's instant torque from an electric motor. Mm-hmm. Diesels don't come up till maximum torque till two or 3,000 RPM. An electric tractor can pull a diesel tractor away like there's nothing behind it. it there's, there's everything going for it, but the lobby and the money that is to be made from fossil fuel and keeping us on that whole treadmill is so strong that well now you've got government funds going into replacing diesel tractors with new diesel tractors yeah i don't even want to go there and they've <laughs> spent they've spent 400 million dollars in california on a program that's supposed to be cleaning up the air right. and yes they're getting the particulates out of the air but they're making less efficient tractors to do that because they have all these filters and things mm-hmm. on them that have to, they um, cause the engines to be less efficient. So they're actually producing more greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. We've, I, I like your, uh, I like the comment you made in, in uh, Steve was with me at electrify expo in long beach a couple of weeks ago. And he made a great comment, which is that, you know, we, we've taken diesel tractors that farmers knew how to work on and we've replaced them with less efficient diesel tractors that the farmers can't work on. And we've done it all on a government program that was supposed to eliminate carbon emissions. So, I mean, yeah. how, how do we address that? How do, so, you know, Clean Technic has got a pretty good size audience. We've got a couple million readers. We've got tens of thousands of listeners who are going to hear this. Who do we write to, to say, hey, you, you guys are spending the money on the wrong thing. How do we lobby you know how do we turn ourselves into a pro electric tractor lobby well we we need to we need to attend the meetings and and write the letters um the california air resources board is the one that makes the decisions on these programs there's a one called the farmer program i was trying to influence them to switch to electric instead of going to clean diesel 
for four years. Finally, they turned the program over to the 36 different air districts in California to make their own programs. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, not that very sounds efficient. really efficient. <laughs> yeah. And most of them, most of their regulatory bodies, they don't have a lot of time to figure out a program. Fortunately, the um, Bay Area Air Quality Management District has fewer farms and they have more time and money um, to work on the things that they think are important. So they, we, we have a half million dollar grant with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District to uh, produce four tractors for farms and vineyards. And in that grant, it's a three-year program where we are going to test those and certify them so that they will qualify for all the, all the programs. And the air districts do have the ability, you have to go to your individual air district and see if they have any money, see if they've developed a program, and then ask for, for uh them to be for you to be a part of a a trial um program where where you um use your electric tractor and over the period of a year or more you certify it so it finally finally um there is a way to get electric tractors into the hands of farmers but it's it's a it's a very difficult uh, path to follow still okay. yeah and and I, I think the path of least resistance in that sense might be you know the hobby farmers who have or the equestrians or those farmers that have a little bit more budget they're not necessarily looking at the farm as a bottom line thing and watching every penny where they can have something that they can get much closer to the animals in you know it's funny I, I i recently was riding on this polaris uh side by side and it was an EV, but it's like a, it's like a utility vehicle. It's like a toy, you know, it's not, it's a working truck, but it's not a tractor. And it was amazing. I was riding through this field and a deer popped up maybe five feet from me. And you could tell he didn't realize I was there <laughs> until I had like crept right up on him. He just was up and then out. And I was just thinking like, you know, we talk about this intellectually, we talk about this in the point of, oh, it's better for the animals, they're much less stressed. If, you know, a dairy cow will produce more milk when it's less stressed, the, you know, pigs will have a better life, the chickens will have a better life. But this is all real stuff. I mean, this is all, you know, we're not only talking about improving the planet, improving the climate, improving the, you know, insulation from diesel costs and that kind of fluctuation, the increase of, you know, independence of these small farmers, we're actually talking about a quality of life for life, like for not just human life, but we're increasing the quality of life for plant and animal life as well with these things. Yeah, we're, we're all dependent on the atmosphere for our, our health. Uh, you know, the, the things we need is air, water, and food. You know, beyond that, there's there's not much in the quality of those those three things is what determines our health. So um, I, I think there's a whole lot of people that are realizing that, that and there's a lot of young farmers coming up that are doing organic farming and even some doing regenerative farming, which is where we have to go 
where we're, we're not only doing organic, but um, you know, m most organic farmers are still using diesel tractors. I was just at a great event called Napa Thrives, and they are so ready for for this change. They 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 are signing up to be carbon neutral by a certain point, and they absolutely know that they can't do it with diesel tractors. So so it's it's a huge opportunity for us to get into um, mass production with the vineyards, with the horse arenas, with the the markets that have more capital to spend and they want to do the right thing mm -hmm. and the vineyards are particularly you know want to be sustainable because that that goes right to their brand if they can be more yeah. sustainable than the next next guy then then they're they're gonna do much better and the, the, they're uh, they're really putting their money where their mouth is to do it so In, indeed they are now Zachary Shahan, who is the the main guy at Clean Technica, he always kind of makes sure he always wants me to not turn these things into infomercials, right? Because I'm 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 into the gears, I'm into the product, I'm into it. So I have a hard time not turning these into infomercials as it is. But with this one, it's really hard because like there's you guys, there's Select Track with with the uh, the the small tractor, and now you're doing the medium tractor, and there's Monarch with a compact tractor. And I don't, I don't think they're in production quite yet. And there's nobody else. There is no John Deere, Kubota, you know, Cub Cadet. You guys are the only electric option that I can go out and buy right now. Well, I, I think that's that's true. I'm, I'm actually sorry. It is true. I, I wish there was a whole bunch of things. To, and you know, the hardest part about being the first is is just getting recognized and, and getting known. And it's really important that people know that electric tractors exist, whether it's Select Track or another brand, just just to know that that, that is out there and, uh, and available. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really happy to be on, uh, on, on the air with you and uh, putting this out there. Because uh, I, I think I think there's you talk to ten people and maybe one of them has ever heard of an electric tractor. So yeah, they have no idea, and and that's kind of the beauty of these formats is you know we we have people coming to our website who they are concerned about the environment, they are motivated by technology, and you know they get excited, they hit you know they retweet stuff they share stuff on social media they comment they get involved so i think that you know the, the more we can expose them to stuff like this and stuff like the work you're doing uh you know i had meant to talk a little more about the umbrella homes and a lot of that stuff that you designed that i've been googling in, <laughs> in the last couple of weeks since we last hung out and just to kind of try to get to know you better a little bit and uh it, it's all just wonderful stuff you know we're, we're coming to the end of our time here i want to thank you so much for doing this i think this is like our third attempt i'm so glad that we we finally did it. What can we do as listeners to support what you're doing? How can we follow along? You know, you talked about this Napa Thrives event. Where can we go to see what events you're going to be at so that we can kind of, uh, you know, so that our listeners and our readers can can see what you guys are building? Well, in California is where most of it's happening. We're going to be at both uh, the Napa Farm Bureau event and the Sonoma Farm Bureau event. Uh, it's their annual fundraiser. Mm -hmm. 
Is that and, open uh, to the public or is that like industry only? Yeah, go online and, and look up uh, Napa Farm Bureau and Sonoma Farm Bureau and you can get tickets. Um, that, that's that's how they're raising money to, to get the word out on all these new things that are happening. There is a, another program in Colorado. I don't know how far your listener base goes, but is it national? Yeah, we've got we've got a, a pretty good uh, pretty good coverage in Colorado. Yeah, great. Yeah, they have a, a program that pays for forty five percent of the costs of an electric tractor. Oh wow! Yeah, is that so, statewide? It's starting in Boulder, and I think uh, I think it's going to go statewide. Yeah, it's a Colorado program. That's tremendous. I, I know you've got your PR people handy. You know when that goes live, or when you know if you guys do a press release on that, definitely get it to us, and we'll we'll put it out there and try to get some more information out there. Because you know that there are farmers in Boulder, outside of Colorado, who would be all over this if they knew it existed. Yeah, and and I just say that for all those states that are lagging. If, if you are in one of those states besides California and Colorado, which are the only two I know of right now, definitely talk to your legislature and, and whatever air district or uh, whatever programs there are and uh, let them know that electric tractors exist. Once people figure it out, or hear about it, they go, wow, why isn't this all over the place? You know, it's it's, all over the place. Exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, getting the word out that they exist and uh, they're better in every way you, you can imagine, you know, it's power, instant torque, zero emission, on-site renewables can power them. You can and be more than that, you don't have to idle them for 15 minutes warming up in the middle of nowhere doing nothing. You turn it on, the, you flip the switch and you go. They don't have to idle at all. <laughs> they only do, they only use energy when you're actually doing work. The, <laughs> you know, the, the farmers may be a conservative group, but, but uh, once they figure, once they see an electric in action and, and see what it means, they're they're converted yeah i mean you 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 can't not be so once again steve thank you so much for being on the show uh we're on spotify soundcloud anchor fm apple Podcasts, all over be sure to hit subscribe when you get there and um that's it thanks for listening yeah let's do it again absolutely thank you for listening to clean tech talk join us next time to get your electric fix If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.